the machinery that locks Australia into the next war, and the revolt against corrupt financial power is spreading. Coming up on this week's episode of the Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's 24th of August 2023. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party founder and leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Robbie. In this week's episode, Craig, we're going to, um, instead of starting with financial matters, we're actually going to look at something that is economic, but it's what um, means that we actually cannot get out of what the, the uh, Anglo-Americans, uh, the, the crazies in the United States, are pushing to um, start a war with China. We are locked in unless something extraordinary happens, and um, that'll give people some, some context for, for all this decision-making that's going on. Put it this way, it's, we're not sovereign. <laughs> and we're also going to update people on, there's quite a few fronts on which there is a revolt against the corrupt financial power that controls Australia, that we've been, um, we've spent 30 years plus um, fighting and exposing. Um, and it, there's, these, these things have real potential, the, the revolt that's spreading out there. Um, and there's not much between a revolt and a revolution. So what's this space? Um, but before we get into that, remember... Um, we need to get the message out so that you can help us on YouTube by liking the show when you watch it, um, sharing it through all your socials, as they say. Uh, subscribe if you haven't subscribed and hit the uh, bell icon when you do. Make sure that's quite important. Please comment. That's very important. Um, you know, engage in the conversation beneath the show. Um, and also donate. There's a donate button down below and we need all the support we can get. Um, yeah, for last your time you and I together. <laughs> last time, you know, we talked about your you travels. Sent me off, and now I'm back. Yeah, well, now you're back, but there's a possibility you've got to go to Cooper Pedy. Cooper Pedy for the, uh, you know, the Regional Bank Closures Committee inquiry. That is on the cards. And you know, these are not cheap events, but total, totally invaluable for the people you get to meet. The extension yeah. of the optimism in being able to fight against this bastardry of the banks. And the other thing is, I want to point out to people. People may not know this, but if you'd have contributed to a registered political party like us, donations up to $1,500 are fully tax deductible. So, you know, and we like that people get some so of our literature to, too. So, give well. it, so support this fight instead of the tax man. That's better, yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. Now, two quick updates before we begin. But the first one, it, I'm going to keep it short, but it's not quick because it's, it's um, inconvenient. Um, I want to pay tribute, Craig, in an unusual way, to a Greens political figure who died um, earlier this month in, in, a very, in very, very sad circumstances. Uh, his name was Fraser Brindley, and I attended his funeral on Monday uh, in Wodonga, where he was born. Um, and it's unusual in the sense that we're the Citizens' Party. We're very different <laughs> to the Greens. Ask them, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, we are not the Greens. And in fact, on some matters, philosophically, we're the anti-Greens, but without making too big a point about that, because that's actually not the point, it doesn't matter what your relative positions can be on things, you will find yourself in agreement on certain issues. And it just so happens that, um, as regular viewers of this show would have picked up, we're often talking about the Greens on this show in positive terms, when it comes to matters to do with the economic and financial policies. Um, 
because the Greens were actually the very first political party in Australia to come out um, and support the policy of a people's bank that, uh, in response to us pushing for it. And that, that, I remember that happened in 2016. But I met Fraser, um, I first started speaking to Fraser when he was an advisor to Senator Peter Wish-Wilson and we were doing the bail-in campaign in 2017. And in fact, Fraser Brindley was instrumental in the bail-in, the 2017 bail-in bill being put into a Senate inquiry. Mm. And of course, we ran, once that happened, we ran a huge campaign to flood that inquiry with submissions, etc. And that meant that when the bill was rushed through the Senate on the um, on St. Valentine's Day 2018, 14th of February, um, there was only eight senators present in the chamber. Most people in the building were, weren't paying attention, but a lot of people in the country were because mm. we, we ran a big campaign on it. And Fraser Brindley played a role in that um, because he's the one who made sure that went to a, a Senate inquiry. Um, and that's what we had in common. And, and he is the person who actually broaden the Greens to, to uh, their agenda to look at the financial system, right? And, and the tributes, I'm not exaggerating there, the tributes from his funeral, all the leaders of the party acknowledge that. He, his, his insight into the financial system organised and educated his entire party. Um, and one of his colleagues made the point that of all the concerns that they shared about the world, and and their concerns included a real deep, you know, very existential fears about the environment, which we don't share, right? That's, that's where we differ. But of all those concerns, where Fraser Brindley was unique is he concluded that all the problems that you see start with the financial system and the nature of the financial system, right? And um, uh, once, once we came into contact, and I pay tribute to one of our supporters, Garth Gilbert, mm-hmm. who actually called Peter Wish Wilson's office in that bailing campaign, and provoked Fraser on a conversation, and Fraser had a follow-up question, and that question went to me, and that's how I began to talk to him. And that was, that was in 2017. Um, once we began to talk, we became very productive collaborators, and frankly, eventually friends, and I regarded him um, as a friend, and it was an unusual friendship because I'm the Citizens Party and he's, he's in the Greens Party. Um, that, French, that, that, pro, that collaboration included... Um, the Greens talking to people in One Nation, talking to, which, which, you know, talk about political enemies, right? But they would actually, they realised they had common ground on, on the financial system and the question of a people's bank. People like Senator Jared Rennick, um, the Greens acknowledged that, you know, um, they, they had even had common ground with Jared Rennick. And so you'd have this funny situation, Craig, where in the chamber, politicians like Senator Malcolm Roberts and Senator Jared Rennick would be blasting the Greens over debates like climate change. And then outside the chamber, they're actually, they're actually collaborating on really important economic matters, including, and probably the most significant one, is the fight against the Reserve Bank. And, and you would have Malcolm Roberts, Jared Rennick, and Nick McKim from the Greens going after the Reserve Bank. And Nick McKim was at the funeral, and he acknowledged that everything he said to the Reserve Bank was written by Fraser Brimley. Everything he knew about the Reserve Bank was taught to him by Fraser Brimley. Um, and so this, you know, Fraser was an incredible guy. And you had, a, you had the role of him, you know discussing these things with Fraser to deepen his knowledge of this because of what we've done for 30 years on this subject. Well, that's, that's right. That's, that's, his attraction to us was we knew what we were talking about. Yeah. This is something that we have exhaust, researched exhaustively. And, um, 
and, you know, I could see that he was one person in the parliament who knew that this was the most important thing above all else. Yeah. Right? Well, it is. I mean, as, as we said, as the topics we're going to go through today are, yep. if you don't have a national bank or a people's pub, public people's bank to stand behind the economy, you lose your sovereignty. Yep. No, that's, that's true. And so very tragic that Fraser's passed away. Um, he's only a year older than me. And um, uh, I'm glad we have this opportunity in these unusual circumstances to acknowledge this person. And I think it's a lesson that, you know, we, we can, you can have really strong disagreements with people. But if, I've, I've, I often say this, I find it better to deal with, with all the crossbench parties except the two major parties because they're controlled by vested interests. And even though I have very strong disagreements with the Greens, I know when I'm dealing with them, what you see is what you get. Right? You know what you agree on, you know what you disagree on. And the other ones can just are, are completely infuriating. Um, and I think when we get to the second half of the show, a lot of the developments that we'll be going through, Fraser personally would be uh, absolutely thrilled over. So Fraser's the kind of guy that the public would never hear about normally. You have to be, you know, sort of in a party like the Greens to even know who he is. We got to work with him, so I got to appreciate who he was. And he's the sort of, I can tell you, he's one of the most important people in the building. He's the smartest and best political advisor I've ever met. And I do a lot of work in, the, in, in Canberra. Um, and it's, it's a great loss to Australia, not just his party. And it's definitely a loss to his family. And really, the help really goes out to them. It's a great loss to Australia that he's passed away. All right. Vale Fraser Brindley. Um, moving on, uh, just another very quick quickly Sunday last Sunday was the deadline for the submissions to the to the exposure draft of the bill that would give ACMA the um, media regulator the power to censor social media clearly it got flooded <laughs> now we, we got ours in as well the citizens party and it's in we've, we've published an excerpt in here that before Sunday when you went onto the website it said that the the submissions would be published in tranches from the 20th of August which was a deadline date it's now saying the submissions will be published from the from sometime in September. <laughs> they have delayed the publication of this because by by all accounts, this has been flooded with objections, massive objections, and criticisms from all sorts of people, not just right wing conspiracy theorists, right? You're talking about the Human Rights Commission and all sorts of stuff, right? So this has um, uh, been a very effective process of engaging with that. Hope, hopefully the submissions alone are enough to blow this whole social media censorship thing completely out of the water. Because if they came, if it came in, what we're about to talk about next, they would try and include into it. So let's get on to that. The machinery that locks Australia into the next war. And we'll start, Craig, um, by talking about the Labor Party conference last week. So... Uh, if you followed the news, the Labor Party, they have a conference, a national conference, once every three years. This is where they establish their, formally their, their party's policies, right? Um, and at the last, that's last one in Brisbane, Anthony Albanese got, well, he effectively forced the conference to back the AUKUS policy, the Australia, United Kingdom, United States pact to spend 360, to, to, for us to spend and them to receive. $368 billion to buy nuclear submarines to protect ourselves against China. Now, this, he actually, he, Albanese sewed this up with the factions, right? That's mm -hmm. how they did it. Mm -hmm. He had two arguments, and I'm giving the arguments because I want to highlight one as we go through the rest of this, this segment. Um, one argument was really 
I mean, it, it's a philosophical conundrum in some respects, but it was, it was particularly shameful. His argument was, Labor has to do this because we have to do whatever it takes to stay in power. Now, here's the philosophical conundrum, Craig. If to stay in power, you have to function like, just say you're the Labor Party. If you get in power and then you think, to stay in power, I have to govern like the Liberals. Well, what's the point of you being in power? The second thing that uh, Albanese said is that AUKUS will create 10,000 jobs. And this apparently is what bought off the unions to, to turn around and support it. Now, there was in the speeches, there was some real lowlights. So this minister, uh, Pat Conroy, jumps up and said that um, if you... Uh, you well, I'm going to play a clip from him in a minute, but what you don't see in the clip I'm going to play is he actually said... Uh, he compared the people who... who he accused the people who oppose AUKUS of appeasement. Now, when you say appeasement, everyone knows what you mean. You're talking about Neville Chamberlain and Adolf Hitler, right? Mm -hmm. Peace in our mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and the, put aside the fact that they're calling, this is, what I, this is what really you know, infuriates me about this kind of debate. If he wants to use the word appeasement and invoke Neville Chamberlain, does that mean he's also invoking China as Hitler? And if China is Hitler, why is it our biggest trading partner? We are the most immoral scum in the world if we are trading with Hitler. See, this is, these are cheap opinions, right? It's, it's, for, it's for political purposes. The poor old Chinese are sitting there going, what, you don't like our money? What is it? What, what does it take to get, to get through to you freaking yapping poodles called Australians? Right? Some guy, some country over there called America tells you what to do. We've given you so much money. We're doing so much trade with you. You get nothing but good business out of us. And, and you turn around and compare us to Hitler. Right? Anyway, enough of the rant on that. That's what he said. Josh Wilson was the only um, member of parliament to get up and speak against AUKUS. And he was actually very brave. The fact he was the only one is very brave. And he took this clown, Pat Conroy, the task on the appeasement question, calling it um, ridiculous. Hmm. So I'm going to play a clip now, and you're going to see, it's just, it's just the Sky News report of the, of the upshot on this. I just want, you'll see a bit of the flavour of some of these speakers like um, uh, Albanese, Miles, uh, Count Conroy, and then later on, um, uh, Josh Wilson. But I want you, when you listen to the clip, look at the vote. The vote went to the voices, and it didn't go to a, to a floor vote. They didn't count the, the, the votes. They wouldn't want to. It's just vote. the voices. But li they said, listen to the voices yourself, because it's on, you know, who has the loudest voices. You won't know the difference. This is how, this is how sewed up behind the scene this stuff is. The fact that you're going to hear the vote yourself, you'll know, there's, you'll know it should have gone to a floor vote, but it didn't. Is, shows you how, in the name of dem, we are we are spending three hundred sixty-eight billion dollars because with with our with our allies who share our democratic values to protect ourselves from that authoritarian country that doesn't have democratic values, and this is how democracy works in practice in Australia. What's the clip? The Albanese government has stared down demands from left-wing unions and officially won the Labor Party's support for AUKUS. Some delegates raised environmental and cost concerns about Australia acquiring nuclear-powered submarines, but the government's promise of union jobs was enough to win over a majority. Olivia Kaisley filed this report from Labor's National Conference in Queensland. The AUKUS issue escalating at day two of Labor's national conference. Outside, protesters speak out against the government's signature foreign policy. Hey, hey. Hey, hey. 
But inside, the push by left-leaning factions and unions to remove nuclear-powered submarines from the party platform torpedoed. But it wasn't without heated debate. The Prime Minister and his deputy making the case to conference directly. The submarines will be an Australian sovereign capability commanded by the Royal Australian Army and sustained by Australian workers in Australian shipyards. The history of National Conference, the history of our party has been built on hard decisions. Delegates, this is a hard choice, but it is actually a clear choice. The Labor Party is proudly anti-war. And the truth is, delegates, strength deters war. Strength deters war. The Electrical Trade Union made their concerns clear. Long after the tensions in our regions abate or flare, this waste will, rem this waste will remain. But most present, including the Australian Workers' Union, were appeased by Labor committing to 10,000 well-paid union jobs as a result of AUKUS. Before the all-important vote passed on voices, confirming the party platform officially backs the $368 billion deal. All those in favour of Amendment 300A say aye. aye. All those against say no. Aye. I declare it carried. While Labor managed to avoid any embarrassment on the conference floor, the fact that one of Anthony Albanese's own party room, Fremantle MP Josh Wilson, spoke out against the government's signature policy is a sign of broader division within the Labor movement. I'm not convinced the acquisition of nuclear-propelled submarines through the AUKUS arrangement is in Australia's national interest. Delegates, nuclear power is frightening. Many lean and Labor members believe nuclear power in any form is a rotten idea. Well, my message to the Prime Minister is uh, to put our national interests ahead of the, the Labor Party interests. Uh, you're elected Prime Minister and you need to govern for the whole of our country. More than 40 local Labor branches across Australia have passed anti-AUKUS motions. But for now, this conference win for the government shows those vocal critics are in the minority. Olivia Caisley, Sky News, Brisbane. There's a, there's a history professor at the University of Sydney who's actually been writing a lot of excellent articles in the last couple of years about this. What's, like he's, he's recording history as it happens, actually. The future historians are going to really appreciate, his name's Professor James Curran, are going to appreciate um, what he's been doing because he is recording history as it happens. He was there and he actually um, uh, pointed out that the, what Wilson's opposition, Josh Wilson's opposition, was echoed um, behind the scenes, he said, at the conference by a senior Albanese government minister who, speaking on the condition of anonymity, likewise voiced strong concerns about the high risk of the submarines. The same minister also confirmed how completely rattled the Cabinet was by Keating's AUKUS critique back in March. Which is why Keating wasn't invited to the conference, which is unheard of, Robbie. A senior yep. Labor figure is not invited to an important national there. conference. And, and, and go back to the voices people heard before. Yeah. There's no... like. Okay, people would have thought, all right, you know, it's sewn up for this conference. They have not settled the opposition in the Labor Party at all, right? This is very important. Now, this is where it gets ridiculous, but this will, this will lead us into the point of this segment. Richard Miles, in his speech, he actually said, he, he said 2030, 2030, which is seven years away, six and a half years away, is, quote, D-Day for Beijing's growth in military power. That's what he called it. And the subs that were spending $368 billion are what's supposed to protect us from 
aggression by Beijing using that military power. Except, that's he, he wanted to put a date on it to make people think this is urgent. Except nothing in the deal is going to give us subs by 2030, not even the ones we're supposed to buy off the shelf from the Americans. So we're going to buy some off the shelf from the Americans. We're going to buy, get, help the Brits develop some, right? Um, none of that's going to be ready by 2030. So when the, when the, the plot, the, when, the, when the, the threat materializes, none of this is going to be ready. It's, a, it's just a charade. And that leads you to a bigger understanding of, hang on, there's, there's other things going on here then, right? Um, one of those is the Fin Review reported on the 21st of August. They had an exclusive that there's a report from the United States Congressional Research Service which warns the United States government that selling Australia three Virginia-class submarines, quote, could worsen the US Navy's shortfall of nuclear-powered submarines and leave it at almost a third below its goal for the size of the fleet. So Americans don't even want to sell us these submarines. Now, Biden has agreed to, but there are people saying, hang on, we need all the submarines we can get. Um, And US congressmen are pointing out this fact. Uh, The report itself continues... Skeptics of transferring Virginia-class submarines from the United States to Australia might argue that it could weaken deterrence of potential Chinese aggression if China were to find reason to believe, correctly or not, that Australia might use the transferred Virginia-class boats less effectively than the US Navy would, or that Australia might not involve its military, including its Virginia-class boats, in US-China crises or conflicts that Australia viewed as not engaging important Australian interests. And that's a reference to what Albanese's language was, which you saw on that clip, where he said, this will be under Australian control. The Americans are saying there, you're not getting them if they're under Australian control. Just forget it. And, and, and Albanese knows that. He's not, that's not him drawing a line in the sand saying, no, no, we're going to take the Americans on, on this. No, no. He, he's agreed to the submarines. He, made, he used his speech to make out that this that what started off as him having less than 24 hours to agree to what Scott Morrison put to him, right, and as a political coward, because he didn't want to fight on national security in the election, he agreed. Now he's pretending that this is his deep and abiding conviction, right, to spend $368 billion on submarines against our, our, our best trading partner. Um, he, he's committed to that now, and so that was just words for the conference, right, that we're going to have them under control. Not only we're not going to have them under control, get this. The report, the same report from the US Congress, floats the option of Australia abandoning its ambitions to operate the nuclear-powered submarines and have US boats perform underwater missions on Australia's behalf. (laughs) So we'll pay for them. But someone else will They'll be labelled ours, but they'll be operated by Americans controlled by the United States Navy, doing their operations on our behalf. And so the biggest joke here, Craig, is the word sovereignty. Absolutely. Right? And that's what Keating went after in his thing as well. You can say it till you're blue in the face. It's meaningless when this is what it actually means. All right. Now, let me, let me go on, though, because we're going to get back to the 10,000 jobs. This, this promise of 10,000 jobs, which the next day Penny, Penny Wong already watered down. But anyway, um, this is indicative of the larger machinery that I'm talking about, the machinery that locks us into the war. Because we are what we are locked into, the reason we're locked into the next war is actually what we're doing is we're locking ourselves into the military-industrial complex, which is Anglo-American, but 
the big companies are American along with BAE system. Everywhere you turn now in Australia, Craig, all the talk of investment is for war. Mm-hmm. All of it. I want to give you some examples. A few, in the last few months, we've been highlighting on this show this thing called the Infl- Inflation Reduction Act, which was a deal that Albanese announced with um, uh, Biden, whereby Australia will be considered a domestic supplier to U.S. industry. And, and Albanese now said, oh, look, this is great. This is going to be so great for our economy. You know, foreign investment and all this kind of stuff. United States investment coming in. The United States investment is going to be investment in things like mines in Australia, right, for lithium and, you know, who knows what else. Um, but, it, but it's going to come with strings attached, meaning the U.S. can tell us who, can we, who we can trade with and who we can't trade with, etc. Um, it'll all, it's all, this kind of investment is all to, for us to um, support the wardrobe, right? Production line for wardrobe. You've even had, just in the last day, you had a, you had a superannuation roundtable in Sydney that was attended by the treasurer, Jim Chalmers, and the former treasurer, Joe Hockey. This is what the Fin Review reported. The Fin Review hosts this, this superannuation. This is about superannuation. What's the popular investment that they're touting for these super funds? Jim Chalmers says the nation's $3.5 trillion retirement savings pool will play a bigger role in defence and national security as the federal government pushes for more institutional investment as expenditure grows. The Treasurer on Wednesday said that there was, quote, an opportunity for the defence industry to be a bigger part of our thinking when it comes to the role of superannuation and other institutional investors in this country. Joe Hockey said, it's time that super funds step up to the plate and give Australia, everyday Australians the chance to invest in their own national security. And he's now with former treasuries with one of these think, this war think tanks called Bondi Partners. Quote, Old perceptions that national security is a high-risk investment class are dead wrong. The previous role of government as the sole provider of hardware and software for national security has come to an end, and they're increasingly looking for private sector solutions that can be adapted to meet modern national security needs. So we've gone... One of the things we've criticised Super 4 for a while, Craig, is things like investing in privatised assets, right? So that when you're like what this is the logic of superannuation if you're invested in in say petrol companies when you're getting screwed at the bowser today you're supposed to think at least this is helping my my retirement in the future when you're getting when you're going to melbourne airport and you're getting screwed at the at the car park the fees at the car park today because it's owned by macquarie bank and ifm investors through, through using your super money you at least can think, but that's helping my retirement in the future, right? It's a bit of a crazy way to think, Rob, because those super funds are, are then paying dividends back to, sorry, the <laughs> likes of Macquarie and so forth that own these privatised assets are then paying dividends back to the superannuation funds, right? Yep. But we're paying superannuation out of these superannuation funds and getting screwed at the Bowser. And now... And, and the airport, right? And, it's, it's, it's insane. Yeah, and now... And this is supposed to be a more efficient way of doing things. And now we've gone beyond that to will be invested in the arms industry to blow up the entire process. So that as we get closer and closer to war and governments are necessarily buying more and more arms, the, the share price of the arms industry will be skyrocketing, right? Like what happened when, um, when, when Trump bombed Syria, BAE Systems and Lockheed Martin's share price just skyrocketed, right? Because they're using up the stock. And so we'll be able to think this war is going to be good for our retirement. (laughs) Just last week, Robbie, I saw reports from BHP that just released its profit for the last Mm. period. 
and it's gone down by a significant amount because the price of iron ore has gone down. Now, mm. this is already sensitive, and there's, there's been no hint of a war with China or whatever. I can just see where you know these forces that the government's relying on to be sympathetic, even the big Australian, to support this war agenda are going to be freaked out because all those institutional investors from the superannuation funds are going to see their dividends collapsing, yep. right? The superannuation funds are going to be losing out and there's going to be an enormous economic backlash against the government for, for promoting this particular policy. And that may, be what this, take time. that may be what this meeting, therefore, was about, to say went to, the, to, the, to the investors class who were freaked out, hey, no, we've got a replacement investment for you. <laughs> well, <laughs> You can invest in the war itself. Yeah, and that's, right? I mean, this is insane. You think about what we've been, I've said before on this program, it's with the national bank, with national credit, investing in the physical economy of the nation that you expand the economic pie, so to speak. Defence is not an economic activity. It's a, it's a service, it's a, it's a waste activity of the, the economy. It doesn't leave anything behind. Yep. You, no, you well, haven't got railway systems, you haven't got dams, you haven't got definition. physical infrastructure by definition. Yep. Defence is a complete waste. Yep. So what we're asking our $3.5 trillion of you know, investment to be spent in is a complete wasteful process. Now, so here's, here's where I get to the, mach the real machinery, though, because we, we've covered this in this week's alert service. And um, if you, you can call in and order a free copy if you haven't had one before. But it turns out that what we're dealing with today in 2023 actually started in 2017. And it started when Australia was included in an American system called the National Technology and Industrial Base. And we joined it. Australia and the United Kingdom joined it in 2017. And that's what laid the foundation for all of this. That's what, that's what locks us in to America's military industrial complex in a way we can't get out of without an actual fight for our sovereignty, right? And so, and not, not to give, not to defend Elbo, but it would take an a leader of extraordinary spine and intestinal fortitude to take this on. It also requires us to make sure that people know this is what's exactly, going exactly. on. Because we've talked about this much before we didn't know that this NTIB, this National Technology Industrial Base, was so cut and dry that in 1992, right, this law was written. Why? It was because, you know, the military-industrial complex back at the end of the World War II, there was 50 different companies, and they were warned... That was at the end of the Cold War, sorry. At the end, end of the Cold War, yeah. yeah. There was 50 different companies yeah. producing armaments weapons. and the machinery, the weapons for war. And, and then there were, because there was this dividend for peace at the end of the Cold War, there was warnings coming from the government at that time to say, you guys are going to have to reinvent yourselves, you're going to have to find other ways to survive and do other things. So instead of having 50 companies, there's now five. Yeah. And the problem is the Ukraine war now shows there is, the U.S. is not an arsenal for democracy anymore. It, it just it doesn't have the capacity to produce the armaments and what is demanded just with the Ukraine war. So what the U.S. government has done is says we've got to go and co-opt the resources and the industries and the activities from other countries to fight our wars for us. Yes. Not fight our wars, Robbie, for them, for yeah. us to be co-opted to fight the Their U.S.'s wars. battles. Yeah. Their wars. So this is a complete, and this means also that, you know, 
where you see this, these legislations coming in to buy up our resources and industries, which mm. is what this does, this is, this is what it's all folded into now. This is part of the process of trying to replace the, Europe, the US arsenal for democracy with a system where it doesn't cost them as much. And just to explain in terms of what's our wars compared to the United States wars. So China's rise has been entirely positive for Australia. We've made so much money provide, selling them the raw materials. It hasn't been BHP funny, and iron, right? yeah, that's right, steel. So there, we, there's no, we have no interest in a war with China. Americans, the, and not Americans, sorry, you know, and there's a real, there's a, there's a backlash in America against this, believe me, look at Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s speeches, but the people who have controlled America in the post-World War II period uh, around this military-industrial complex threat that Dwight Eisenhower warned about they see China, they, they say, first of all, they say we, are, we have to be the sole superpower, America. And now China is rising and they're saying, well, we're not going to live in a world where we're not going to be the sole superpower, so we're going to go to war against that. And what they've done, and that, that's, their, it's, that's even crazy for them, there's nothing in it for them except this, 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 um, this, this insanity, this egotistical insanity of having to be the, the top dog, um, but they've co-opted their own country and people in our country. And I want to give some of the, 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 the quick timeline on that. Yeah. So you're right, 1992, this thing was established and the first company co-op, country co-opted was Canada, right? So Canada was included in this thing in 1992. Um, uh, and it's all in line with this Wolfowitz doctrine, it's called, of America will be the sole superpower. It will never tolerate a rival superpower. So in 2017, that was expanded to... Um, include the United Kingdom and Australia. So there's four countries in this national technology industrial base now. United States, Canada, Australia, and the United Kingdom. Not the Kiwis, but I can tell you, and we don't have time today, there is all sorts of white anting going on in New Zealand to bring them into line with this as well. So it's all the Five Eyes countries, right? The, the, the white powers of the world uniting again against that terrible you know, Asian threat. Um, now, that, the 2017 Act coincided with the United States rather dramatically in 2016-2017, changing its national security um, assessment to say ISIS and terrorism, which had defined the previous decade and a half, are no longer our greatest threat. Our greatest threat is China and Russia, right? They, they said that in 2017. Um, Christopher Pine, now, now when it happened here, when we joined this thing, Christopher Pine was the Minister for Defence Industry. Christopher Pine, as uh, they like to call him. Um, he began pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into defence technology. He bragged at a Lowy Institute event in December 2017. He said, he, quote, he was creating a major sovereign defence industry. <laughs> sovereign. Even though we've been, we've been co-opted by this national technology um, uh, industrial base thing by the United States. And he said the NITB was, quote, a real opportunity to draw our defence industries closer together and develop areas for further cooperation, which would decrease the barriers between our four countries, which is another way of saying give up our sovereignty to this thing, right? In 2018, at a speech in London, at the it's called the Defence Industry Dialogue in London, he said, quote, this is a quote from Pine in 2018, we don't want there to be a time in the foreseeable future where any other country has the same military capabilities as the United States or reach of alliances around the world as the United States. That's an Australian minister defining Australia's policy outlook as America's national interest. Hmm. And, and, a, uh, and, a, and not even the real America's national interest. Um, 
In 2019, a report by the NATO-affiliated think tank, the Atlantic Council, advised the United States government to accelerate the integration of the industrial bases of member nations of the NTIB. Integrate, right? This is necessary, it reported, to, quote, leverage the capabilities of U.S. allies to address U.S. national security needs. Exactly what you said, right? The report identified 22 legislative options to enhance integration, including development of a format similar to the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, but with a more formal governance structure. Again, give up your sovereignty. Quote, a seamless integration, uh, quote, a seamless integration of the industrial bases of the United States, Canada, Australia, and the UK is needed to address growing threats, said the report. And this is what I'm saying, we're all locked, this is what locks us in to this. But here's the question, Craig, the final question on this segment. We're now talking about all this in terms of, this is where, like Albo said, there's going to be 10,000 jobs here. Is war the only way Australia could achieve its industrial potential? Right now, Robbie, there are 40 countries meeting in South Africa with yes. the BRICS groups, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. Those five countries have been meeting for well over a decade now yep. on the idea of what Xi Jinping's criticised for, you know, the win-win solution, the advantage of the other, mutual economic cooperation. China has gone into countries previously colonised by the Anglo-American Empire, right, and I say Anglo-American Empire because that's what we're dealing with with this uh, NTIB. This is colonialisation from the worst side of America. Mm. So the BRICS group of countries represent a complete different polarity. And what's telling you the difference is that there's 40 other countries wanting to knock on the door yep. and become partners of these BRICS countries. So you have this rather large, I mean, half the world's population is involved in this mm. economic block around all sorts of strategic collaboration. And they're talking about a new currency block made up of the... The R5. The R5, which is the, the currencies... The BRICS members' currencies, currencies all have to start with R. R. They're talking about the an R5. alternative to the US government. Right, so the real threat, well, the Wolfworks doctrine here, right, where US remains the sole superpower, that's actually evaporated now. Yeah. Because the degree of collaboration that there is between these countries is enormous and ongoing. And the reason that countries want to collaborate with China is because the world for the last 50 years has been dominated by these IMF slash World Bank conditionalities, which says we won't allow you to develop in any other way than we tell you, which is another form of you know, Anglo-American, particularly Anglo-British-dominated you know, colonialism. They call that appropriate development. Appro actually. Yeah, and it means that you we can't have nuclear power in yeah. African countries. You've got to use solar power instead. And and, then, sorry, a quick example of that. Niger, Niger, that's just had this coup. Um, Niger was the country that supposedly Saddam was buying yellow cake from for his nuclear, which was all fake, yeah. fake right? But Niger has lots of uranium. But they might have uranium. Niger is the country that burns more wood for heating than any other country in the yeah. world because they're not allowed to use it. Yeah. And it's this, it's this sort of tension that they're saying, the people of Africa are now saying, no, no, we want to develop our own resources. We want our own wealth. And the other thing, Robbie, internally in the United States, we heard reports today from our collaborators over there the U.S. banking system is teetering. You've got major banking, yeah. so banks that have been down, downgraded from you know double A minus to to double A and and further because of the implicit debt within the system. The twenty three trillion dollars of quantitative easing that's been pumped into the system, 
and literally, you know, you now to see the backlash coming from, you know, from like people like Robert F. Kennedy, uh, you know, and his presidential campaign challenging uh, the challenging the status quo and the, the this this banker's monopoly, mm. and you literally see if he taps into the rage of the American population, which is really excessive, then all sorts of changes can happen that we are not expecting. Yep. And, um, all right, so like I said, we've covered this issue quite comprehensively in the alert service this week. So um, get yourself a copy if you haven't already got one and you can consider um, subscribing to it. Running out of time, let's move on. Um, the The revolt against corrupt financial power is spreading. So I gave, a, I gave a, a quick update last week on the hearings in Western Australia on bank branch closures. The update on that is National Australia Bank waited until the WA hearings were over to announce its latest closure in WA and in, in, in the town of um, uh, Waruna. Now, that's just, that's just below Mandurah. And this could be the spark that actually ignites the, the bonfire um, because... NAB is the bank that's so um, arrogant and it's totally ignored this inquiry and it's continued with these closures. But the way they've done this to, to actually wait till the inquiries out of the, like the, the hearings in that state are out of the way is, is so sly, it's blowing up in their face. The, the locals and the politicians are furious. Um, the politicians, like the chairman of the inquiry, Matt Canavan, and, and the WA local senator, Slade Brockman, they put out a... Um, uh, uh, a, a press release straight away and they called out NAB for this. The press release said, NAB waited until after we'd conducted our hearings in WA to close another branch just two hours down the road from where we were. They've done this with little to no consultation with the community and unlike the other big four banks, have not put a halt on their branch closures while we undertake our inquiry. Um, the, I spoke to the Shire President, Mike Wormsley from um, uh, Waruna. Now, um, they are furious because this is one of those shire. This, this, this is not a shire that is is um, losing that money. It's making lots of money out of this. I mean, Alcoa is based in this shire. Alcoa is this massive aluminium refinery in Western Australia. Um, uh, he was telling me there's another employer in the on the edge of town who employs 850 people, and. When NAB was making noises about this a couple of years ago, that employer said to NAB, if you close your branch, I'm, t- I'm taking my business away. And, and NAB, po- NAB, NAB didn't close the branch then. This time, NAB announced they're closing the branch. That employer got on to NAB and said, I'm moving my business. And they said, we don't care. I mean, and that raises all sorts of questions, Craig, about what sort of business is banking now that they don't care it, it, it means more to them to push us in the money they can make out of this digital path they're pushing us down than actually serving a big business that employs 850 well, people. Well, they're only interested, right? Robbie, in ripping people off on mortgages and making their profits and derivatives. I think you made that point earlier. Yeah. And then they look at their profit. You know, I mean, made whatever they make in profit, I think it was $2 billion in the last... That's uh, a quarter. Yeah, a quarter, was it? Yeah. Oh, whatever the huge profit was, they look at, oh, we're being very profitable here. We don't have to worry about all these headaches from these local branches. Yeah. We don't have to have people worry. You know, we don't have to service people. We don't need to do that. Look, we can make this money anyway. They're gonna, they're gonna, that's, um, how they, that's how they're thinking. I know. They're going to rewrite the profit and loss statement. There won't be a loss. There won't be a, an expenses side anymore no. in the future for for banks, right? It'll all be it'll be a profit side. So that yeah, the community responsibility, the, this idea of having any sort of community conscious or responsibility to the community, 
yeah. is is just being thrown out the window, and this is what's creating the enormous rage in the population, and they're they're so arrogant about it that uh, this is what actually brings about defeats. No, exactly. Um, now another front. Now, sorry, before I move on, this there's a whole bunch of towns now that are have that NAB is um, their local NAB branches are on the chopping block. And those towns are probably going to start working together to put up a united front against this. And NAB could really regret this um, quite soon. So watch this space. Um, another rebellion is against post office closures. Um, so last week, after we shot the show, we went into the city here where there was a, a, a protest at, in front of Australia Post headquarters against the closure of the local Glenroy post office. Um, this, is, this is the kind of... Australia Post, Craig, is using the same deception techniques as NAB. So, you know, we've exposed NAB for saying that, oh, visitations have fallen, but they don't count any of the visitations that don't involve deposits and withdrawals. They had to admit that. So, in other words, they're lying about visitations falling. Well, in the case of the Glenroy Post Office, Australia Post issued paraphernalia saying um, where the local, where the next closest post offices are. And they said, Airport West, 2.7 kilometres away. And, of course, that's true as the crow flies. But, but it's a particularly ridiculous thing because there's no way to get to Airport West from Glenroy as the crow flies. You've got you a, a five and a half kilometre trip down the freeway or you've got a many hour bus trip and all this. Sort of, it was Be- deliberately spun because right, it's to con people. Because there's an airport in the middle of it. It's called That's Essendon <laughs> Airport. So you can't just <laughs> no, drive across exactly. Essendon Airport. You've got to go around it. No, exactly, exactly. That is that, uh, very That's why good it's called point. Airport That's West. That's why it's called Airport West. Um, and, and Glenroy could have been called Airport East for that yeah. reason, right? It's, it's literally another side. You've got to go around it. So this was this is a joke. I mean, that, what sort of thinking goes on in the minds of these big corporates that they come up with these kind of lies, right? Um now, at the protest, the Postal Workers Union was there. It's called the, sorry, the Communications Workers Union, it's called. They spoke and they advocated a postal bank, as we've been advocating. Now, that leads me to the next thing, because on the weekend, Senator Malcolm Roberts put forward, he wrote an article for The Spectator Australia, where he put forward the Roberts plan for a postal bank. And it's actually quite a creative plan. The essence of it is this. His argument is Suncorp was supposed to be bought by ANZ, and the ACCC has wisely knocked that purchase back because it would result in too much... Com- There's already not enough competition in the banking sector, right? So the ACCC has said no, and that was going to go through for $4.9 billion. So Malcolm Roberts is saying, well, so that means Suncorp is on the market for $4.9 billion. We have the Future Fund, right? The Australian Federal Government's Future Fund has $250 billion in it. Buy Suncorp and you sun- turn Suncorp into the basis for our postal bank. And it's got all a, the systems. And you'll have a massive increase in competition. You'll have a massive increase That's in competition. You, you could it, All the systems could be rolled out through the through the post office around Australia and you've got the publicly owned postal bank right there ready to go That's all scaled up. That's a definition of competition there, Robbie. Very, very, very much so. So this is, this is a proposal leading to that. The banks would be freaking out, Craig, at that idea. Absolutely freaking out, which is good. And finally, I'm, I'm rushing a bit because we're on a deadline because I want to play a few clips, but... Um, to, yesterday and today were the first proper hearings of this ASIC inquiry that regular viewers have been involved in helping to establish, right? And this, these hearings were explosive because you got people to being able to say in their own way, um, uh, you know, what their experience with ASIC is, and it's universally bad. Now, I, I just want to play three clips to give a, a flavour of it. Um, the first clip is the first witnesses from uh, Arita, 
they're liquidation specialists. And they actually make a really important point. As liquidation specialists, they go into companies when they fail to find out what went wrong and what can be done, who, who gets money and whatever. And therefore, they see the result of bad directors and whatever. And they should be ASIC's eyes and ears because they have the best intelligence. They, they see it live. ASIC is impossible to work with, right? So anyway, here's, here's their uh, witnesses speaking yesterday morning. But for us, it goes one further. We don't just want ASIC to be an effective regulator of corporate insolvency practitioners to ensure that bad practitioners have no place in the market and to protect the reputation of good practitioners. As liquidators are the primary investigators of corporate malfeasance in Australia, identity design of the Corporations Act, we believe we have important insights into ASIC's performance in regulating directors and the companies they run. Historically, liquidators report some 10,000 concerns per year to ASIC about directors to who are failing to meet their legal responsibilities. From phoenixing through to fraud and insolvent trading, sadly, that yields very, very few prosecutions of directors. We know that phoenixing alone costs the Australian community more than $4 billion per year. We wonder how that is allowed to continue on ASIC's watch. Indeed, as we see this, we are constantly reminded of the former ASIC's chair's comment that Australia is a paradise for white-collar crime. My team and I lament the ASIC press releases that show the all-too-infrequent successful prosecutions against directors and the frankly laughable penalties that are often imposed by the court. Penalties that show occasionally being found out is a small cost of doing business compared to the windfall of ill-gotten gains. All right, the next one, this is heartfelt. This is a victim um, of, the, what's, well, of a scammer known as the Wolf of Woi Woi. This was on Four Corners last year, um, Mr Donovan. And he's just giving his experience, uh, you know, as and this thousands and thousands and thousands of financial victims around Australia have all had the same experience. They, go, they, they, they become victims, they go to ASIC assuming that there's something ASIC can do and they all get the same response. Here's, here's his uh, quick grab on it. What has this told you about the way that the corporate cops work in Australia? They don't. They just don't. They don't care about the little man. They don't care about the investor. They're just not in what road. They just, it doesn't matter what you do, you jump up and down and try and get something done or you try and better your life. When you try to better your life, you better it for yourself, the government and everyone else. But you've got no one to help you back, to help you to get through when there's a problem. You know, you, you people, enforcement agencies rely on people to tell them what's wrong and, and so it can be fixed. But what's good at telling someone to fix something when they don't do anything about it? And this is what's come back. And like, I believe in this company, there was a lot of lot of small investors. Now they're people with not much money. Like not myself, worked all our lives to have be on a pension. Now, if everything had been right, we wouldn't have been on a pension. We wouldn't be relying on the government. We would have had money, but because of the not doing and not investigating things that were was quite blatantly sitting there in front of their eyes and you could see what was going on. Like any person that's not educated could see what was going on and yet they just got away with it and ASIC did nothing. And then finally, this is the most important one. James Shipton, the former chair of ASIC, who was ousted by the by the banks and, and we've, we've covered this in the past. We don't have time to go through all the details. He actually had some really insightful things to say about ASIC resourcing, but it actually means that even, of course, with this 2,000 people employed by ASIC, he'll talk about that. Among those 2,000 people, there's plenty of really decent people who would like to do their job properly, right? Um, the problem is there's no political will to have 
among the major parties and the, the financial establishment, the financial powers, to have a proper regulator. And that's why those sort of people have a hamstrung. He just lays it out. He lays it out in the important context, Craig, of how much our economy has become financialized over the last few decades, starting in the 90s, including the growth of debt. So just listen to James Shipton's insights. ASIC is hugely capacity constrained. Um, and I just want to give you some, some, some benchmark numbers. There are about 2,000 employees at ASIC, and they are, in effect, enforcing and policing the entirety of the Australian economy. The Australian economy has grown hugely in the last couple of decades, but yet the funding and the resources given to ASIC has not. At the same time, the jurisdictional uh, demands on ASIC has also grown. Its responsibilities have also grown. And therefore, you've got smaller numbers of people at ASIC trying to handle increasing numbers of malfeasant activities and other concerning actions. To put it in perspective, there's 2,000 people at ASIC around today. There is 65,000 police officers in Australia. 65,000 police officers police appropriately the community, yet we only have 2,000 policing our massive financial and corporate sector. A corporate sector that is around about 13th, large, 13th largest economy in the world. And to put that 2,000 uh, personnel number in perspective, that's equivalent to the size of the Northern Territory Police Force. So essentially you have a small number of people trying to police and enforce against a massive economy and a massively growing economy. Meanwhile, the asks both uh, legislatively and from a community expect, expect, expectations are expanding. And I'd also make the point that there was um, a missed opportunity back in the 1990s when there was a seismic shift in Australia's economy. Two things happened in the 1990s. Firstly, we moved to superannuation, which is in effect put the responsibility of retirement largely onto the population. The second thing that happened in the 1990s was that there was a skyrocketing of the amount of household debt. In the 1980s, household debt to, uh, compared to uh, income levels was around about 45%. Today, it's 200%. That's all to say that Australians are now more engaged than they ever were in the financial sector through superannuation, through borrowing, through mortgaging uh, and financing. And yet the system that was designed to police this has not caught up and is largely been left in a design structure that emanates from the pre-1990s. So I am concerned, uh, as I no doubt you are, about these statistics, but I do think there needs to be fundamental reform and a fundamental rethink about the funding, the capacity and the support that is given to ASIC and other regulators in this important space. It's interesting, Robbie, you know, James Shipton was dumped the same day Christine Holgate was dumped. He was. And for the same reasons. Pretty much. The more, the more we've looked at it, the more convinced we are by that, right? He took the, he's the only person in Australia that took the, the recommendations of the Banking Royal Commission seriously. Yep. Right, he employed a, a head of enforcement who said the banks should fear us, and the banks said, "Nope, that ain't going to happen." And they got the politicians on side. 
And I'm going to finish with this, Craig. On Monday night, there was a soiree in Melbourne for a very large law firm called Arnold Block Liebler. Um, and we won't go into everything we know about them. <laughs> but the point is, they're taxation specialists, and there was all these billionaires there and all these politicians. Every billionaire in Melbourne seen about this thing. So was the current chairman of ASIC, Joe Longo. And right there is a very disturbing picture because that guy, the chairman of ASIC, is supposed to be regulating and policing those other people in the room. But they're all pals together, right? And that is emblematic of what's wrong with the, the way the system works in Australia. The inquiry, though, that, has, that is hearing this, and Senator Bragg, I was, gonna, I was hoping to get... I didn't have time to find more clips of Senator Bragg himself, but Senator Bragg was... People were sceptical when he started this inquiry or what, what his motives were. I always felt that whatever his motives were, the more he came into contact with financial victims, the more he'd have to realise, hang on, this is a problem. Mm. And I think that's what's happening. And so this led to a, 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 pretty, a very powerful um, hearing yesterday and today, right, which means this inquiry, I think, is going to go places. That is also part of the rebellion against the powers that be in the financial system. So... We better leave it there, though, Craig. We're running out of time. Okay. Thanks for joining us today and persevering through your cold. Thank you. It's all <laughs> Thanks right. to the viewer for um, uh, watching the show. Like I said, you know, if you want to get a copy of the uh, the, the thing on the um, National Technology Industrial Base, you can you can um, get one from us. Um, otherwise, stay tuned for more of these exciting developments, and see you next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.